We've been going through the book of Acts for the last four weeks, and uh, a couple years ago, we went through chapters one through seven of Acts, and now we're picking up back in chapter eight this time. And so far, we've heard a lot about Philip, who was preaching and healing in the name of God, and he was doing it so much so that we saw Simon the magician try to actually buy this power from Philip. And we saw Philip encounter the Ethiopian eunuch who believed the gospel and was baptized by Philip. And here in chapter 9, the focus has shifted from Philip to Paul, at least for now. And he's referred to as Saul in our passage. Today, you'll hear me refer to him as Paul, which is his Greek name. It's the name that most of us know him by. And last week, we saw how Paul was heading to Damascus to persecute the Christians there. But on the road, on the way there, he met Jesus, who had already died. But here he was, talking to Paul, asking him why he was persecuting him. And through this experience with Jesus, Paul was converted, and he received the Holy Spirit and was baptized. And we're picking up right there today, right after Paul's conversion. So if you please turn to me, or turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. It's printed in your worship guide. If you're looking in your Bible, uh, we're starting in the second half of verse 19. It's split a little unusually. So let's read God's word together. For some days he, this is Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would use it this morning to shape us and to change us. Help us to pay attention to what you're saying to us, and please remove any distracting thoughts. And God, I pray that you would use me. May the words that I speak reflect the truth of your word, and may you use them to build up your church and bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Her favorite pastimes were riding her horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said to her. If you haven't figured it out by now, these are the opening lines to the book featured in the movie The Princess Bride. And this back and forth between Wesley and Buttercup kind of continues through the opening of the story where Buttercup is bossing Wesley around and Wesley responds every time with, as you wish. Eventually, Buttercup realizes that every time he says this to her, he's actually telling her, I love you. And despite the fact that Buttercup was mistreating him, he still loved her. All her abuse and the constant demands, they just seemed to not even faze him at all. All that mattered to him was his love for her. And he actually wanted to do her bidding as a result of his love. You wouldn't think that he would react this way. You might think that he would grow to resent her or to want to quit his job. But his love for her made him react in very unexpected ways. Well, what is your greatest love in your life? It's an easy question to answer, right? God. But does your life actually prove that? Does your life actually show that you love God? The Princess Bride would have been a much less compelling story if Wesley told Buttercup that he loved her, but his actions didn't match what he was saying. Buttercup wouldn't have believed him. Do your actions match your words? Do your actions show love for God? God tells us how he wants us to show our love for him by obeying his commands. And his commands require us to do some pretty countercultural things. So are you willing to live in a way that makes no sense to the world? We're going to see a few examples of that in our passage today. What we're going to see is that because Jesus is greater than this world, we must show our love to him in ways that the world would not expect. And there are three specific ways that this passage is going to show that we should show our love to God. First, we must proclaim his name. Second, we must suffer for his name. And third, we must embrace one another in his name. Proclaim his name, suffer for his name, and embrace one another in his name. So first, we must proclaim the name of Jesus. Look at the first two verses of our passage. <clears throat> They say, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And when we read this passage, we're probably not surprised by this, right? This is Paul. This is what he does. He preaches the gospel. This is probably the most unexpected thing that anyone could have imagined. We need to remember that Paul was going to Damascus to round up the Christians, to throw them in jail, possibly having them executed. He had just overseen the execution of Stephen just a couple chapters before this. 
So imagine what the Christians in Damascus were thinking and feeling when they heard that Paul was coming. They were probably terrified. How confusing must it have been when he shows up and starts preaching that Jesus is the Son of God? I mean, imagine watching all of the Harry Potter movies, and you get to the last movie, and imagine a Death Eater has Harry cornered, Harry's in trouble, and all of a sudden, Voldemort steps in and says, no, don't hurt Harry. He's the chosen one. We should apologize to him and pledge our allegiance to him. It would make no sense. But that's basically what we're seeing here. The people who witnessed this, they didn't know what to think. Verse 22 says that Paul confounded the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And this is the exact reason why he was persecuting Christians before this, because they were saying that Jesus is the Messiah. And now all of a sudden, Paul is going into the Jews' very synagogues saying Jesus is the Messiah. He's showing them, that, he's showing them from Scripture that he was wrong all along. Well, believe it or not, there is a growing segment of the American population that believes that the earth is flat. Uh, some estimates say that up to 1% of Americans are flat earthers. And I'm not going to try to explain what they all believe or why they believe it. That's a rabbit hole you can go down on your own time. There's plenty of stuff on the internet. But one person who doesn't believe in flat earth theory for sure is famed astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he's spoken out about the absurdity of flat earth theory on several occasions. And he's a guy who knows what he's talking about. Well, imagine one day Neil deGrasse Tyson walks into an astrophysics conference in front of a room full of scientists and starts to tell them that he's been wrong the whole time. The earth really is flat that would be pretty unexpected. Now imagine that as he's debating with them, he actually starts convincing them that the earth really is flat. That would be even more unexpected. But that's what, kind of what we're seeing here with Paul. He's going into the mouth of the lion, right into the Jewish synagogue, to preach a message that goes against everything that they've ever believed. And he actually starts convincing them If you're here today and you're not sure about all this Christianity stuff, I'm glad you're here. You're welcome here. But it might be worth asking, how was Paul convincing the Jews that Jesus was the Son of God? Either he was a remarkably convincing person, or perhaps there was actually truth to what he was saying, and the people could see it. Let me ask you, if you are a Christian, what's stopping you from proclaiming the gospel? We all have people in our lives who we wish would profess faith in Christ. We probably pray for them, and when we get really bold, we might even invite them to church. And those are good things to do. Keep doing those. Keep praying for them. Keep inviting them to church. But realize that those things are not a substitution for sharing the gospel with them.
The gospel is the good news that Jesus has died for the sins of all who would believe in him. The world needs to hear this. Your friends and your family, they need to hear this from you. And what's more is Jesus commanded us to tell them. So what's stopping you? Maybe you feel like you don't know enough. You're worried that they might give some objections that you don't know how to answer. You might feel like you need to learn more before you can share the gospel. And learning is good. Pursue learning. But that didn't stop Paul. Paul's whole world was just turned upside down by Jesus. He barely had time to catch his breath. And in verse 20 it says he immediately proclaimed Jesus. He didn't wait until he felt ready. He knew the world needed to hear this message, so he just went out and got to work. Maybe you're worried what will happen to your relationships if you share the gospel with someone. That didn't stop Paul either. Paul wasn't stupid. He knew the Jews were going to turn on him. He was their star, and in their eyes, this guy had just betrayed them. He knew it was going to get rocky, but he also knew that Jesus was greater than whatever hard things he was going to have to face. Whatever your reason for not sharing the gospel, just know it's not a good reason. I'm preaching to myself when I say that too. And remember this, it's not up to you to have the right combination of words to convince someone to trust Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts and converts people. But the way that the Holy Spirit ordinarily works is through the word of God and through the church. And that's you. You are the church. This building isn't the church. Sunday mornings is not the church. Dan and David, they aren't the church. All those who profess faith in Christ are the church. And Jesus is the head of the church, and he has overcome the world. So if the thought of sharing the gospel gives you knots in your stomach, remember what the gospel is. It's not a sales pitch. It is the truth. It's the good news that the God of the universe loves his people enough to die for them. If you've trusted in Christ, it's the news that has removed the heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. It's the news that our sins have been forgiven and we have a relationship made right with God through Jesus. We cannot keep this to ourselves. Jesus is greater than anything this world has to offer. We must proclaim his name to the world. But we must also be prepared to suffer for the sake of his name. Verse 23 says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Paul had become a thorn in the side of the Jews. This man who they had once looked to to silence the Christians was now a Christian himself, and they felt they had to stop him by any means necessary. Verse 24 says, they were watching the gates night, day and night in order to kill him. The hunter had become the hunted. The persecutor had become the persecuted. But Paul found out about this plan to kill him, so we see in verse 25 that his disciples took him by night 
and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Apparently, Paul's ministry in Damascus had been fruitful, fruitful enough that he has gained disciples, and most likely one of them probably had an apartment inside one of the city walls for this escape to be made possible. And since the gates were being watched, they lowered him through a window in a basket. It's not the most dignified escape plan, but Paul was determined to persevere. He probably could have made peace with the Jews by going and publicly renouncing his faith. But he couldn't do that. He needed to continue his ministry. So he snuck out and he ran away so he could continue to serve Jesus. A couple weeks ago, uh, we got a new golden retriever puppy. And she's 10 weeks old. She's super cute. Her name is Piper. Uh, yes, named after John Piper. And people keep asking me how it's going, and I think the common response that I've been giving people is, it's a lot harder than I expected it to be. <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting, but I didn't expect to have to take her out to the bathroom every half hour or to watch her 24-7 to make sure she wasn't you know, chewing on cords or peeing in the house. It's a lot harder than I expected it to be. Well, unlike me with our dog, Paul knew how hard the Christian life was going to be. He knew because he was a part of the group that had made the Christian's life hard. He could have just put his head down and tried not to be noticed by anyone. He could have taken the attitude that many modern Christians take, that my relationship with God is just something between me and him. It's a private matter that I'm not going to force on anyone else. It would have been much safer for him to live that way. But faith is not safe. We shouldn't be caught off guard when suffering comes our way, especially when it comes because of our faith. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts 14 says that it's through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of God. And in our passage last week, Jesus said specifically of Paul that he was going to suffer for his name. Well, if you've never experienced prejudice against yourself for your faith, you might want to consider whether it's because you're not living your faith out. Maybe it's because no one sees Christ in you. I'm not saying you're not a Christian if unbelievers are generally nice to you. But it's something worth considering. If you haven't experienced persecution or prejudice for your faith, could it be that it's because you're not acting like a Christian? Well, what will sustain you when the world does turn on you? Maybe you're wondering, what's the upside to living out our faith? If my faith is going to turn the world against me, what reason do I have to live according to God's will? The reason why is that Jesus transcends all the hate and all the suffering that this world could throw at you. He has called you into his family as his son, as his daughter. And like Paul, he has forgiven your wretched rebellion against him. 
If you have met Jesus and have been saved by him through faith, there is nothing in this world that could separate you from him. No amount of suffering can overcome the love and the power of our God. Jesus is greater than the world. So we must proclaim his name and we must be prepared to suffer for his name. And because he's greater than the world, we must also embrace one another in his name. In verse 26, Paul goes to Jerusalem to find refuge and there he attempts to join the disciples. But it says they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. The disciples knew who Paul was. Some of them, some of these disciples may have even known Stephen, who Paul had just had killed a little while ago. They didn't believe that Paul was for real. They thought maybe he was trying to trick them somehow. It makes sense that they would feel this way. But in, in verse 27, Barnabas comes to Paul's defense. He told the disciples that Paul had encountered Jesus and had been preaching in his name. Barnabas vouched for Paul and explained to them that he was for real. He wasn't there to hurt them, but that Jesus had actually spoken to him and chosen him. Chosen him. And so the disciples did accept him. And the fact that the disciples accepted him is mind-blowing. It's completely counterintuitive, completely countercultural. You might expect them to turn Paul away, you know, good luck on the streets. You might even expect them to want to get a measure of revenge on him, but they accept him. And Paul does something equally unexpected. Rather than lying low with these disciples and trying to stay safe and hidden, he just continues his ministry. Verse 28 says, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. I'd say boldly is right. It's pretty bold to pick up where you left off after you were just, some people just tried to kill you. And the same thing happens to him here. Verse 29 says, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, which was this segment of Jews, and they too responded to Paul by seeking to kill him. But here's the interesting part. In verse 30, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. The degree to which the disciples had accepted Paul is on display here. Suddenly, they're putting their lives on the line to save Paul. Their acceptance of him was real. It wasn't some begrudging tolerance. They embraced Paul as a brother in Christ. This man who had made their lives hell, who killed their, friends, their friend Stephen, they now loved. And it wasn't because he made some sort of penance or he made it up to them somehow, it was because he was now their brother in Christ. Their relationship to him had changed dramatically because of the work that Christ did in Paul. Well, in 1941, there was a Swedish pianist named Métis Gertner, who was living in France when the Nazis took over. And she used her skill as a pianist to kind of gain the favor of the Germans, and eventually she started playing for some of the highest commanders in the German army. But what they didn't know is that she was working with the French resistance, and she was 
uh, listening in on their conversations and gaining intelligence wherever she could. After about two years of this, the Nazis finally caught on to what she was doing, and Métis was arrested and sent to prison where she was tortured, uh, specifically by a young German officer who she came to know as Leo. Leo tortured her so badly over the next six months that her central nervous system was damaged and she would never be able to play the piano again. And after six months of torture in this prison, the Allies finally got there and they set everyone free who was there. But the damage done, done to Métis was permanent. In 1984, this is about 40 years after this predicament, uh, she received a letter out of the blue, and it was from Leo, her torturer. He was now old, he was terminally ill, and he wrote her to ask if she still believed in God and in heaven. And she wrote back that yes, she does still believe. And this led to a few letters back and forth between them until eventually they would agree to meet in person. And when Leo arrived at her home, he broke down crying and he asked for her forgiveness for what he had done to her. And how do you think she responded? She took his head in her hands and kissed it. Then while embracing him, she forgave him. It wasn't begrudging, it wasn't for show, she didn't just forgive him, but she embraced him and kissed him. That is the power of Christ at work. That is the power that allowed the disciples in Jerusalem to accept Paul, not just to tolerate him, but to embrace him with open arms as their brother in Christ. Well, what's your relationship like with your fellow Christians? You know, many of us have friend groups here in the church, and that's fine. But what about those who are outside of your normal social circles? How do you treat them? Even more, is there a fellow Christian who you're holding a grudge against? Maybe someone in this room? Jesus said in Matthew 5, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He's saying... It's easy to love people that are in our own circles, but even unbelievers do that. What's different about you? Is there anything different about you? The reason why we can forgive those who have wronged us, the reason why we can ask for forgiveness, the reason why we can be reconciled to each other as Christians is because we have been reconciled to God. He had no obligation to send his son to die for us. He had every right to hold a grudge against us, but instead he made a way for us to be forgiven. And it's not begrudging forgiveness. He forgives us willingly and completely. He has adopted us as his children. If you've experienced this kind of love from God, how can you refuse it to others? How can we withhold love and forgiveness 
from those who God has loved and forgiven. Are we more righteous than him? Jesus transcends the pain and the brokenness of this world. We have been called to live as God's children, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. You don't get to choose your family. We're stuck with each other. Forgive each other as you have been forgiven. Embrace each other as God has embraced you. Final verse of this section shows that the church throughout the region had peace now that Paul had been converted and the church was multiplying. God calls us to do these things that we might not expect, but he does them for our good and for his glory. When the movie The Lion King, uh, Simba runs away from home because he feels responsible for the death of his father, who is the king, Mufasa. And you see Simba, he takes up with this meerkat and this warthog, Timon and Pumbaa. And he spends years with them just living a carefree life. Meanwhile, back home, Simba's uncle Scar had taken the throne and was running the kingdom into the ground. And eventually, Simba's old friend Nala finds him and she tries to convince him to come back and to take his place as king and to get rid of this evil king, Scar. But Simba refuses. He doesn't want to do those hard things. He wants to keep living his Hakuna Matata life. Well, do you remember what eventually convinces Simba to go back? It was his father, Mufasa, who he sees in a vision. Mufasa says to him, you have forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. Remember who you are. You are my son. Remember who you are. Do you remember who you are? Let me ask it a different way. Have you forgotten who you are? If you have trusted Christ alone for salvation from your sins, you are a child of God. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. You are his. You have been freed from the power of sin and called to live as sons and daughters of the king. We have not been called to live a hakuna matata, no worries life. We have been called and freed to live as we were truly meant to live. And that's going to mean living in ways that the world might think are weird. But Jesus is greater than this world. And through him, we can do what he has called us to do. To proclaim his name, to suffer for his name when the time comes, and to embrace one another in his name.